This episode is brought to you by Salt and Strings Butchery in Southern Illinois. Order your custom beef today by visiting saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Barbell Logic, the premier online coaching service for barbell strength training. Get your first month free by signing up at barbelllogic.com slash hardmen or use the link in the show notes. Well, welcome to this episode of the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and delighted to introduce our guest for today's show, and that is the Honorable Ron Simmons. Mr. Simmons served three terms in the Texas House of Representatives, and in business before he was in politics, Ron was the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Retirement Advisors of America, so they're managing retirement for commercial airline pilots from all the major airlines. And at the time of the sale of the company in 2019, they were managing over $3 billion in assets. Later on in his career, Ron Simmons went on to serve under Greg Abbott as the chairman of the board of Texas Mutual Insurance Company. They were managing over $1 billion in annual revenue. So he has a ton of experience. He also serves as an advisor to the CEOs of the Heritage Foundation and Texas Public Policy Foundation. The other reason you might know Ron is because his daughter is somewhat famous. She is the host of the Relatable podcast, and that is the one and only Allie Beth Stuckey. Ron has appeared on her podcast to talk about his new book. He's also been on with the fine gentleman from Monroe, Louisiana. Yes, even Duck Dynasty. He was on there to talk with Phil Robertson. That's what we're going to be doing today in this episode. We're going to be talking with Ron about his book, Life Lessons from the Little Red Wagon, 15 Ways to Take Charge and create a path to success. This book is written with Don Yeager and it has a foreword by John Maxwell. Of course, the book is published under the Maxwell Leadership Book Publishing Enterprise. Again, we have a fantastic conversation together in this episode. We talk about leadership. We talk about being a father, how those roles change throughout a man's career. And finally, we talk about finishing well as men, as business leaders, politicians, whatever calling God has called you to. I think this is going to be a very encouraging conversation. So be sure to check out the show note links where you can find copies of Ron's book. You can also follow him online, social media, and his website. And now, without further ado, we'll jump into the conversation with Ron Simmons. Well, welcome to the Hard Men Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kahn, and joined today by the Honorable Ron Simmons. Ron, thanks so much for joining me on this episode. Well, thank you, Eric. I appreciate that. And I appreciate what you're doing. I love the name of your your podcast. We need more of that for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ron, today I want to jump into the discussion on your new book, Life Lessons from the Little Red Wagon. And uh, one of the things that struck me is you began this book by talking about kind of one of the lower moments in life, losing uh, the District 65 race in Texas. So I, I just want to get a, a feel for why you started there. Of all the places you could start, why was that so important to begin there for you? Well, I think it was important because, you know, I'd been elected originally and then reelected twice. And in my mind, you know, we were just going to keep doing that for a period of time. But the reason it was important that I start the book was that I wanted people to understand that disappointment and sometimes big disappointments are a major part of, of life, whether you're successful or not. I think people understand that when people write a book, they have a generally have a good message to tell eventually. And so I wanted to make sure we got people's attention. And it was also something, Eric, for me that was was humbling to lose, no question. But what was even more humbling and actually disappointing was the way I felt about losing. And that's kind mm. of what was the issue that uh, that really made me go back and really think about it and what it meant. And then, and then um, you know, trust, trust God that this was part of a bigger plan that I certainly didn't see. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things you mentioned in the book at that time, you, you went away to the mountains, you got some time alone, and you also were thinking back on family history and kind of what your legacy is. So I kind of want to hear more from you about like, how did that progress in your mind? You're thinking about legacy. You think about your own life. How do you define something like legacy? How do you define it for your kids? This is what I want to leave behind. 
Yeah, that's a good question. Well, for, for me, uh, I had an aunt, which I mentioned in the book, that had done our family history all the way back to the Battle of Hastings in 1066. So oh, wow. a pretty yeah. long ways back. We were originally part of the Travers family, which was a French family, became the Travis family when they moved here, married into the Ellis family, which was my grandmother. Then my grandmother and my grandfather was a Simmons. So that's how I have my name. But so we, and we grew up knowing that our family had been here for a long time at a lot of the settlements uh, in Mississippi. And I'd read about him in the book, but I'd never really gone, you know, to the graveyards and to the places where they had been. And so as, as, I'm, as I'm processing this event in my life of losing the race, I begin to reflect uh, more. One of the things I learned from John Maxwell in a book called Thinking for a Change is mm. that we do need to take time to think. And this was that journey. And I was asking myself, when my great, great, great grandkids look at my headstone and they see my name, not so much written on the headstone, but what will come to their mind? Will they have known about me? And will it have been something that I have left a positive mark on them? And sometimes the marks that we leave are defined by how we handle disappointment. As I looked upon you know, those headstones and thought about all that and had my book out from um, the, the history book, you know, it just was like, Ron, you you can either let this define you in a negative way and be bitter about it, or you can figure out, you know, how to move on, ask God to show you, you know, what the plan is from here and, uh, you know, make sure that you do what you've told your kids. And I've told my kids a hundred times that we're uh, we're supposed to be congratulatory in defeat and gracious in victory. Hmm. And I wanted to make sure that I did what I was telling my kids and grandkids that they should do. Yeah, that's such a powerful message. Uh, I want to read this quote from the book that really stuck out to me. And then I want to ask you about it. So in there, you write, when there's a defeat in your life, you have a decision to make. Are you going to focus on the bitterness of the defeat or are you going to be open for the next blessing? So I want you to talk just a little bit about why attitude, you know, you've had a lot of roles, father, uh, legislative process. You've been a part of that. CEO, but so much of success in life, especially for men as leaders, comes down to this, how you handle your attitude in these moments. So talk just a little about why that's so important for success. Well, I think what happens if the road to success, as you know, is not straight, okay? It's windy <laughs> yeah. and it's narrow, right? Just like the Bible talks about it, evil and, and, and uh, good. And so if on on our road to success, whether it's in our relationships or whether it's in our business or our public service career, when we hit a bump in the road, okay, or what seems to be a, a wall in the road, you know, at the time they seem to be walls, then if we focus on the wall or the bump, all right, what happens is, is that we get all spun up about that emotionally and we think about it and, and it's good to, it's good to, to go back and review to see, is there anything you could do different? However, if you stay focused on that, once you've analyzed it, once you maybe, if you're a person of faith, prayed about it, if you don't move on, that next blessing that was sitting right over here on the other side, somebody else comes along and it's them or it doesn't happen. And so that's my whole key was, yep, hit it. I get it. You don't like it figure it out, understand it, but then you have to move on because generally, and this is what's happened to me so many times, is that the blessing on the other side was something I never even contemplated. I mean, not even, it didn't even come close to me thinking about it. And yet God's sitting over there thinking, oh, Ron, hey, I'm over here. I'm over here. You know, just get on over that little bump and then we'll worry about that later. Right? Yeah. That's the amazing thing. It seems like you'll hit one of those moments and you feel like, oh, everything's over. It's all coming apart. And you describe this in the book, just shortly thereafter, uh, you get uh, a couple of contacts, important phone calls, you move on to something completely different. Yeah. So walk me through what that was like, making the change from legislature to then, uh, I, I believe, working for the governor, right? Well, yeah, the governor. So I, I so uh, just a little bit of background, just kind of yeah. help people understand. So I in, in my last session, the Speaker of the House decided that he was going to retire, all right, which happens. That's normal. And so there was, there was other people that were jockeying to be Speaker of the House. And a group of us got together, and there was one gentleman, Dennis Bonin, who had been in the House for quite a while, uh, although he was still young. He had entered when he was in his 20s, so he was uh, just, I think, just turned 50, that we thought would be the best candidate. 
And a group of us cobbled together enough votes committed to help him be speaker uh, after the next session started. Well, oddly enough, because I lost that last race, I didn't even get to vote for Dennis. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think Dennis felt bad about that as well, you know, because I put a lot of effort in helping and, and whatever. And other people had too. It certainly wasn't only me. In fact, we I refer in the, uh, into the book, The Four Horsemen, and they know who they are. And we were basically <laughs> yeah. the group that put all this together. And so Dennis came to me after, not long after my election loss, and he said, Ron, would you like an appointment from the governor? And I said, well, yeah, I'd, I'm happy to do whatever. He said, well, what would you like? And I said, well, I would, I've always been interested in transportation. I was on the transportation committee. I chaired a subcommittee. So as one of the Texas Department of Transportation has five commissioners appointed by the governor. And I said, you know, though I knew one of those were open. I said, I would, I'd love that. So he says, I don't think that'll be a problem. I'll just go talk to him. He's already been open to it. You know, he felt the governor felt bad about it as well. And um, so a couple of days later, he calls me back. He says, you can have anything but transportation. <laughs> and of course, again, that's another small bump in the road. And you're like, well, yeah. what? I, you know, I could have focused on getting mad about that. Well, why, 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 you know? But he said, but he, we're, what, because what the governor really wants you to do is he wants you to uh, be head of a company called Texas Mutual Insurance, which is the state's workers' compensation company that the state controls. The governor controls five out of the nine uh, board memberships, and he wants you to come in on the board, and also he wants you to be chairman of the board. And this company has a billion dollars in annual revenue, uh, has 45% of the Texas market, has a $7 billion investment portfolio. So really right up my alley, given my investment background and all that, and so it's something that, again, I'd never thought about. I'd been in the legislature for seven years, never even thought about Texas Mutual. And all of a sudden, this opportunity to serve in a capacity that I felt like I could, you know, really help with and also learn something. And there it was. And that's that's where you have to just say you never. I mean, again, something I never would have thought of. Do you desire to be shrewd financially for the sake of your family and future generations? Well, we know that a robust society depends on getting this right. Success in building and passing on personal wealth. Let's be mature, responsible leaders with the resources God expects us to turn a profit on, to love our children and children's children well. Joe Garrisey with Backwards Planning Financial integrates investments, debt, insurance, tax strategies, and legacy planning in a holistic approach, coaching his clients to to act wisely. You can do better than you received. You can affect your family's trajectory and maximize your efforts to set up long-term fruitfulness. Joe starts with your values and goals, then provides impactful counsel to help you form and implement your financial plan. Click on the link in the description for Backwards Planning Financial and contact Joe today to get started. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, especially I think when you look at your background. So you start uh, with some of your early history, and um, getting out of you know your home, going on to be your own man, be an adult, that sort of thing. And one of the points I had to laugh out loud. So this is, I believe, you're dating your wife at the time, yeah. and you're sleeping in the hallway at her parents' house. Yes. And I love this quote. You said her grandmother said, "Don't you give up on that Ron Simmons? He's going to be president of something someday. You hang on to him." And you wrote, I can tell you there were there were not any signs that Ron Simmons was going to be successful at that point. No, there were not any. <laughs> one, one thing I left out of the book, and my wife reminded me I should have told it, is that before I graduated to the hallway, okay, I lived in, uh, their dad had a tool shed in the backyard. <laughs> and I, we took half of that tool shed and made me a little bedroom. But when I would be at work during the day or at school, their 100-pound, you know, golden retriever lab mix would lay on my bed. So it was, <laughs> I, I promise you, there was nothing. But, you know, that also shows you the insights of people that are mature, which I think we're losing a lot of that today because of our cancel culture. Yeah, that's really big. I, I mean, you talked about in the book, your, you know, your wife's grandmother's wisdom in that moment. I had a, a business colleague who was a CEO at a media company. I worked with him for a while and he would always say, you know, when you're evaluating people and future leaders, he said, always look at a man's trajectory, not exactly where he is today. Yeah. And so it becomes important that you're looking at the total trajectory 
Um, I wonder, have you learned lessons from that that apply to like how you hire uh, when you were CEO, when you're running companies? Did it change the way you viewed people kind of knowing what your own story was? I don't think there's any question about it. As I, as I looked at people, you know, I there there are some things that tell you about a person as uh, their commitment and their ability to discipline themselves, you know, and, and getting a college degree has some of that, but that is not the end all, right? Mm -hmm. So what I tried to look at in people that I hired was, first of all, were, were their values compatible? That was really mm. important to me. Was it, it didn't have to be exactly the same. And I didn't, you know, ask them a, quote unquote, religious question, but were their values compatible? And you can usually learn about that just by asking questions. Okay. It's not that hard. And then secondly, did they have a desire, a desire to, to not only improve for the sake of money, but to improve? I would always ask people, what's the last book you read? And if they couldn't quickly tell me that, it probably wasn't going to be a great fit. Interesting. Was that just because... You know, if somebody's reading books, generally they're they're, they're thinking generally about stuff. interested yeah. in in yeah. uh, being able to feed into themselves, you know, but, and to make themselves better, and that was important. Yeah, it, it kind of ties into something else you mentioned in the book. Obviously, developing a friendship with John Maxwell, um, getting involved with some of the leadership stuff there. I, I wonder if you would just talk about how you met him and how that relationship has shaped your own trajectory as a leader. Sure. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's a very good question because he's actually been very, very important in, in our life. And so I met John probably like a lot of people met him. I met him first through his books, right? That mm, somebody yeah. had given me his book. I didn't know who John Maxwell was. Somebody gave me uh, Developing the Leader Within You, which is one of his first kind of big books that he had great success with. And so I read that. And then Lisa and I were in the Amway business for, for probably, I don't know, 10 years or so. And through that, we would attend conferences. And a lot of the conferences were really based on personal development. It wasn't about selling a product. It was about how can you become the better you? And what I found, Eric, was that becoming a better me not only helped me at home, but it, all, and it helped me obviously in that business, but it also helped me in my other businesses as well. And John would speak at those on occasion. I had the opportunity because we had had some success in that business to, to meet him kind of backstage a couple of times, one of those uh, meet and greet type things. And then he uh, talked on stage one time about this event that he did called Exchange. And he mm -hmm. has about 100 to 150 business people from around the country that you can you can attend it, but he limits it to like 100, 150. It's reasonably expensive, but it is a three day event in different places around the country that is just phenomenal what how he sets it up. Like for one, one year we went to Philadelphia and he had David McCullough, the writer, come speak oh, yeah. about something to us in Independence Hall. Right. I mean, it's incredible. Uh, and then so so I went to one of these exchange events. And at lunchtime, John, we break for lunch and John says, before we break, if any of you want to know what I'm really passionate about, then, uh, you know, I'm going to talk about that separately from this in this room down the hall. And he talked about his, obviously his faith, his passion for winning people to Christ. And he also talked about this organization he had that was doing this around the world called Equip. Mm. And that for me it just touched my heart that I knew where John's heart was. Because he, when he talks business, he's very good, very entertaining and all that. When he gets to his heart, he's a little bit like me, okay? Sometimes I'm a leaker. And so <laughs> I could just tell it in his heart. And that yeah. that's really what sold me on John. And then we just developed a personal relationship over time. We both have houses in the mountains of North Carolina that are close to each other, and we see each other. And uh, we just have a good, we have a good time together. We play golf together. And he has taught me so much. When I was going through this scenario with elected office, uh, you know, he helped me walk through that and, and what have you. So it's, he's been a big, big blessing. And for him to uh, be willing to publish my first book, I was very pleased with that. And to introduce me to Don Yeager. Don Yeager is an incredible storyteller. I mean, the guy's got, I'm, I am the least of the people that he's written books for. I promise <laughs> you that. Yeah. He's got some great books under his belt for sure. Uh, you know, it, it ties to something else you talk about later in the book with mentorship. 
And uh, it's something we talk about a lot on this podcast. For whatever reason, uh, men in our culture have a hard time developing uh, particularly male friendships, uh, especially as they get older. Um, so I wonder if you would just speak about why is it so important to have those friendships and also mentorship if you're a young man and you want to be successful? Yeah. And, you know, I, I, that's, I, I find that even in the lives of my own children who I love dearly, mm-hmm. I'm constantly telling them, you need to find mentors outside of me and your mother, okay? Because we can be objective up to a point and then our objectiveness right. is just not, it just doesn't, I wish it would, but it doesn't happen that way. And so you need to be dealing with mentors, whether it's, whether it's you know, our daughter or our sons. Um, and so, because what I found over time is that, and part of it was because of the challenges that we had in our own family and my dad and I had, and, and, and our relationship is better today. But I was 17 on my own. I didn't have anybody, okay? So right. I was, con- and I was a little bit of an old soul. You don't know, understand what I'm saying when I say that. And I was constantly looking for people. I, I wasn't intimidated by the fact that they had gotten along further than I had in whatever it was. And I think that's right. where people stop is they're embarrassed that they're not better. But people that are good mentors don't want, don't care about that. But I could, there's only so far Ron could take Ron in business, and there's only so far Ron can take Ron in his spiritual life, his relationships. But there's no one person, Eric, that could fill that all those roles for me. And that's where I think people get caught up too, is they try to find one mentor for everything. And I talk about in the book, you need to have a spiritual mentor, a financial mentor, relationship. You know, you need to have different mentors and you need to have different ones at different parts of your life, right? Like for now, the mentorship that I try to get out of someone like John is how do we make sure that we're leaving a legacy, right? Mm. A legacy of influence. I'm not, I do believe in it, you know, in passing down a physical inheritance, but really a legacy of influence that our grandkids and great grandkids can say, you know what? I learned this through what my dad told me that his dad told him or his mother told him. That's, that's really what I'm talking about. Yeah, that is really powerful. Uh, describe for me, I guess, on influence. You know, you talk about this in the book more. I know John Maxwell's talked about this as well. But, but what is influence and how do you develop it as a, as a father, as a leader, as a husband? Yeah, I think, I think the influence for me is being able to enact actions or attitudes in people without directly telling them to do something, right? So it's influence. And you're influencing that through what you've done, what you've said, how you've lived, how you've interacted. And what what we're trying to, to do is we're trying to make sure, because when you influence somebody and they act on that, it's something that's now inside of them. It's just not, okay, son, clean up your room, right? It's I right. Was, In fact, I was having a conversation not an hour ago. We're having a remodeling job done on a how, our house here in Dallas that we, that we just purchased. And w- when I was growing up, my grandfather on my mom's side was a small home builder in North Louisiana. He built a couple of homes a year while he also had a farm and, and all that. And I worked for him one summer. And I'll never forget, I learned more in that summer, not by when he said, Ron, this is how you nail this nail or this is how you do that, just by observing his influence. And one of the things he influenced me on was that, and this is small, but it's important, is that we're going to have a clean job site. So my last job every day was to sweep the floor, pick up any loose nails, screws, whatever we were doing. And it's so impacted me that every time I have any construction done and the construction people don't do that, I think less of them because of oh, yeah. that. Because that is instilled in me, right? For some people, they wouldn't care about that as long as it's all done when it's yeah. done. But for me, if they don't sweep that floor up daily, it's like, well, what are you doing, right? So anyway, that's, that's kind of off the subject. But I, that's what I mean about influence. Because he never... Yeah, he never just demanded that, right? It was just, okay, it's what we do. Yeah, that's really helpful. One of the things I think young men, especially reading your book, could be really encouraged by is that, you know, a lot of us say it would be great to have solid family, solid fathers, mentors at a young age, but some of us just didn't have that. So uh, you can, but you can still be successful. So I, I wonder what advice would you give to younger guys? Maybe you don't have the mentors now. Maybe it's something you have to develop, 
but how would you encourage them uh, if, if they're kind of starting from zero in that regard? That's a good question, Eric. The, the, and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, as I said in there, is there's, a, there's not many Tiger Woods in the world that are as famous and, and, and as good skilled as he is, but there's a lot of Ron Simmons. I mean, there just are. Mm-hmm. If, if 56% of the marriages end in divorce, that means a lot of our colleagues, our friends, people we deal with, they had family challenges, right? Maybe raised yeah. by a single mom, whomever, whatever the scenario was. And so what, what I think you have to do in that is is you have to as I talk about but you keep taking the next step right whatever the next step is hopefully that you've got some type of faith foundation that helps you guide your morals in that okay and I do think that was helpful for me and I'll give credit to my mom and dad for when I was little they instilled those things in us so that even when I strayed from that which I did as a lot of people do I always knew it was wrong. And so eventually I would kind of sometimes begrudgingly come back. (laughs) And and I think you have to depend on that. I I began writing letters to my father. Interesting. But it wasn't my biological father. It was my heavenly father. Mm. And Eric, I would put my thoughts to him and ask him Mm. questions. I'm sorry for being emotional, but it was... That that's what I would do because I didn't feel like. Now I could have been wrong. I could have. I probably incorrectly judged my own dad on that because uh, he, he is a good person. But I just didn't have that relationships, and, and I needed it, you know. And so that's the way I would do it. I just had a journal, and I would write letters to my father, which were prayers, of course, but they were more conversational, at least in my opinion. And that's what you have to do. And you have to ask for, you have to seek out mentors. You have to go find them, okay? There are people that will do that. Now, we live in a cancel culture, so people my age are a little bit more apprehensive, right? Because we're afraid we're going to say something that we didn't intend to be wrong, but we'll be accused of being wrong. Right. Yeah, it's such a powerful, powerful thing. Fatherhood is so important, uh, particularly for men. Uh, I wonder too, you know, I was reading, reading your book and I was thinking there were several moments, key moments in your life. I think one of them was when you set a date of, I'm going to be out of this company by 1998, yeah. uh, if I'm remembering that correctly. Right. But a lot of it had to do with family. And so one mm-hmm. of the things for men, I found this to be true. There's just a, a constant process, a reevaluation of where am I in terms of pouring into the business versus my family needs me. And you're having to make continual pivots in those areas. So I'm curious, how did you, uh, how did you make those decisions? Uh, Was it input from your wife? How were you deciding, okay, I need to pull away a little bit at this point and be more family directed? You know, I will say that while certainly I knew that Lisa would enjoy me being more family directed, she was never, ever one that would nag about that. She just was just not her personality. Um, she just was, that just wasn't what she was going to do, but uh, there probably were subtle things that she said that, that stuck with me, you know, like, Hey, Justin's going to be a sophomore next year or seeing, you know, those types of things. And so I had, had built our business with help of others. Don't ever want to think it was all me. It was not, it was a group of us and we built our business. I had been CEO for a few years now, we had gone through, as it's talked in there about the lawsuit, it just been really intense. I traveled 70% of the time for part of that. And I did essentially one day look up and like Justin, our oldest, who we had had at a very young age, he's going to be in college in a couple years. And after that, who knows? So I just made the decision. I put a date on the calendar. I knew that anything without a date is just a wish, right? Yeah, so I put a date right. on the calendar. And uh, 1231.98, I was going to walk away. I talked to my other owners and partners. And, and while they were supportive of the concept, they thought I was crazy, right? I was leaving money on the table, <laughs> yeah. all of which was true, okay? They weren't wrong, but they just, they just weren't there in le- mentally, I guess, emotionally. And so I just made the decision. I had, I, I, in the back of my mind, I knew that the money that we had accumulated wasn't going to be enough to last us forever because I was only 38 when I did that, right? Just turned 38. Wow. But I also, for some reason, and I think this is what happens, we had a calmness about it. And Lisa wasn't worried about it. There was a calmness that, okay, if I end up needing to do something else, I can do something else. I was confident 
by that time, I'd had enough success uh, in business that I was confident that at the worst case scenario, I could go work for somebody else and, and take care of my family. But he would, as a junior in high school, all right, when that happened, he was going into his spring semester. He was on the golf team, and it allowed me to spend a year and a half with him in that last, and the mother, rest of my family too, but mainly with Justin to, you know, go to his golf matches, caddy for him some, spend time together, go on some That's great. road trips. And I'll tell people all the time, it, it probably did cost me multiple million dollars, but I would not change that for anything. And then, of course, on the other side of that, which I had no idea, here comes this new blessing, okay, that actually financially probably made it even better than I could have ever done otherwise. So I think that I think you do have to, like you said, you have to reevaluate. You have to continually reevaluate. And there will be periods in your life. Look, if you're looking for balance in your life, get over it. It's not going to happen. You're (laughs) going to be out of balance here for a little bit. And then you're going to be out of balance there for a little bit. You'll, and you just have to be intuitive enough and, and, and listening to the people around you enough to know when to make those switches. Yeah, that's really huge. One of the questions I want to ask you, you know, balancing, I guess, this always moving forward, which we have to have. But I, but I also think about uh, something, I think it was a founder of Google said, somebody asked him, what's the best day of your life? And he said, tomorrow. And it was kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, you want to move forward, but you don't always want to, you don't want to overlook the blessings of today. No. So I, I wonder just like, you know, probably with with your son spending time with him, that's one of those moments so how do you think about balancing, you know, pushing forward while enjoying the blessings that are right in front of you? Well, I think what you have to do, and I was not great at this, okay? And, and if I had to change anything about the way I was, I would change this, is you have to be present wherever you are. Mm. And if we're present when we're with our family, and I see, I see my kids doing a much better job of that than I did, maybe because you know, that was the bad influence and they didn't want to do that. But, but I think that's the one thing that I would tell people is that, and I think actually society is a little bit better about this than they were when I was in my young twenties and thirties growing up that where the boss expected you to stay as late as he stayed and all that stuff. Yeah. Now I think it's a little bit, it's acceptable to, to have a little bit more uh, interaction and to be more flexible. And so I would just say that when you're with your family, be with your family. Okay. But when you're at work, it's the same thing. You know, don't be Googling around on the internet or spending time, you know, handling, you know, the plumber at home, be at work, right? Get your stuff done, whether that's whether you work from home or whether you work at the office. Presence is what I would say is the number one thing. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious too, as a father, how is your you know, parenting changes. I'm noticing this. I have a 16 year old and an almost 14 year old, uh, both boys. And I'm like, man, this is so different than when they were toddlers and you're preparing them for adulthood. Well, you've now got to see kids grow up and raise their own families and do that sort of thing. I'm just curious as a father, how, how have things changed in your role as parent with your own kids? Yeah, that's good. And, 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 uh, I'll go through two or three situations. One thing I tell young parents, uh, at least in a I've worked in um, church scenarios where we're with young married people. And so we tell them is that, look, when your kids are young, there's lots of issues. Almost all of them are small. When your kids get to be adults, there's not near as many issues. Like you don't have to worry about what socks are going to wear tomorrow. Right. (laughs) Yeah. But every issue is large. Okay. And so it, from the standpoint of how it takes place in your heart and your mind, it doesn't change because we only knew kids when they were little at the time. And when they get big, we, we know them as little and big. And then the big issues are ones that sometimes there's not even an answer for. Almost every scenario with our little ones, we could, you know, pretty much handle. With our big ones, sometimes there's not an answer. And so what I've learned to do is just be a listener as much as I can. My my two, uh, uh, my kids are pretty good about asking for advice. You know, they're, they're not ones that are, are shy of doing that. Allie Beth does that a lot. Justin does that a lot. They, they, you know, Allie's in the podcast world. Justin, my oldest, is a federal prosecutor. 
uh, for the U.S. Attorney's Office. And so do that. And then in the middle, we have Daniel. Daniel has autism, right? And he also has seizures. And so how his problems that he deals with are a mixture of what we would consider adolescent problems and big problems. So those that is the difficult part of the process as to knowing when it's the same person at the same time. How do, do I handle this? Is he processing this like a 13-year-old or is right. he processing it like a 37-year-old, which he does, a mixture of things, right? And that's, that's the challenge. And, and my wife is much better at it than, than I am, but I constantly am learning about that and it's constantly teaching me patience teaching me that they're small victories that are just as important as our big victories. Oh, big time. Yeah. And every kid is different. So it really requires wisdom. Yeah. There's not like cookie cutter answers for everything. There's really not. And again, you just have to, you, you, and, and, and you know, think about boys at your age and they're, they're feel, they're trying to feel who they are. Right. And oh, yeah. peer pressure and all those types of things. But at the end of the day, I'll never forget uh, that my daughter, when, um, and this is a, you don't have girls, right? Just boys? Just boys, three boys, oh, yeah. Okay, so, and just like my son has three boys. But my, and, and I had two boys first, and then we had our daughter quite a bit later. And when, when she began dating boys, which is like the worst thing ever, right? That you can <laughs> yes. imagine, you know. And uh, the boys would come over. They would come into, this is exactly the truth what happened. They'd come into my office, and I would say, hey, I really appreciate you taking Allie out on a date tonight. That's great. And, you know, we knew their parents and all that. So let me just ask you one question. Okay. Okay. You know, they're nervous. Are you going to marry my daughter? And that's great. And they would say, uh, uh, you know, they would just get off. I said, no, no, you're not. I get that. That's fine. I said, but that means you're taking out somebody else's wife tonight. And wow. you know what else it means? Somebody's taking out your wife. So I want you to treat my daughter like you want your wife treated tonight because she's out with some guy tonight. I don't know who it is, but she's out with him right now. And, and, and then uh, and Lee, Allie Beth hated that, right? She hated it, <laughs> which I guess she would sit in the other room with my wife and why is dad doing that? Why? But I will tell you, before she was 21, she came back and thanked me Yeah, for that because she, she, that was the solidity she felt she, she well, my point is, is that no matter what they're going through right now, if you've conducted yourself properly and tried to teach them properly, you will be their foundation that they will come back to here on earth. Right. Oh, yeah. And that's what's important. And it may not be right as quick as you want it, but it will happen. Red meat is a staple of a healthy protein packed diet, but not all meat is created equal. That's why I buy my meat from Salt and Strings Butchery. Salt and Strings is owned and operated by my friends, Quinn and Samantha Bible, and the meat they offer is raised, harvested, and processed exclusively in Southern Illinois. It's cut and packaged by my friends, Quinn and Anthony, and not only is it the best meat I've ever had, well, all their meat is sourced from local farms that share our Christian values. Salt and Strings is now offering a beef and hog box that can be shipped directly to your door. The 15-pound beef box features 100% black Angus beef and includes ribeyes, T-bones, sirloin, chakros, fajita meats, and ground beef. You can order your beef box today for just $259. They will send it directly to your door. The hog box is $239 and features premium Duroc pork, including eight thick pork chops, one of my all-time favorites, pork steaks, cured and sliced bacon, ground pork, bratwurst, and breakfast sausage links. You can place your order today at saltandstrings.com or use the link in the show notes. And also be sure to follow Salt and Strings on Instagram. We'll also include the link in the show notes. Yeah, and there's a transition too. I remember I was like 21. We had our first son, my wife and I did. And I remember going back to my parents and I was like, first of all, I am so sorry because I was a pain <laughs> in the rear. <laughs> and I now understand why you told me all that because I'm saying them now yeah. to my children and I understand. So yeah, there's a, it, it's a process. I think too, with parenting on that front, just a lot of patience that you're doing, you know, when you're, when you are, when you're doing the right thing, you just, you wait it out and you pray for them a lot, Yes, absolutely. especially as adults. And, uh, and you kind of have to see how that goes. You do. You do. One, one of the things I want to ask you, I found fascinating. Um, so I went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary 
so pretty familiar with a lot of the the Dallas culture. You know, we were watching Adrian Rogers and all this stuff for yeah. years. And yeah. these guys, you mentioned something. Uh, you got to sit under W.A. Criswell mm-hmm. at First Baptist Dallas. And you said when, when he spoke, it sounded like God was speaking. And I, I, I will never forget this, but like hearing the old time Baptist preachers, mm-hmm. it was just so formative for me. It's what drew me originally into the ministry. Uh, so I, I want to ask you, just what was that like? You, you got to know him a little bit, sit under the preaching, the ministry of the church. How did that shape you as a man? How did it shape your family? Well, it, well, it's, well, that's a, I love that. It's, I love this experience because I remember when I, you know, again, my family's been Baptist for 300 years, literally. Wow. And that's, that's so amazing. We, that's just who we were. Okay. Now, John yeah. Maxwell will tell you that's one of my problems. I need to, I need <laughs> to get out of that. But, but we yes. laugh about that, of course. So when we came to Dallas, I told Lisa, who was reluctant to move to Dallas, she lived in basically the same house for her whole life, right? Uh, I said, well, I want to, if we're going to Dallas, I'm going to First Baptist Dallas. Because I, you know, you heard about it, right? If you were a Baptist, you grew oh, up yeah. in this thing in your mind and all this type of stuff. They got a bowling alley, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> come on. I mean, we had a fellowship hall is what we used to call the, the you know, downstairs where we'd have dinner. And so, wow. so we, so anyway, long story short, we went there and I said, okay, we, we liked it. We got into a young married class, which I talk about that in the book because that was really influential. Yep. But also said, I'm going to meet the pastor. I don't char- join a church without meeting the pastor. And she's right. like, this is like, he is not going to meet with us. What are you talking? That's not going to happen. Da, 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 da. So, well, we'll see. So I called down there. Of course he did. And again, walking into his corridor in his office, which was dark and long and ornate. Hello, lad. I mean, it was, it was <laughs> but it was like Lisa and I were the only ones there, right? I mean, it was like the yes. most important thing he had to do that day. And sitting under him, we got pretty engaged in the church. And occasionally they would call you, somebody from the church would call you and say, hey, the pastor would like for you to be on on the stage thing with them this this week and say one of the prayers. And when you did that, you also got to go beforehand and pray with him before the service. And it was just incredible. One of my, one of my, I got two things on this I'll, I'll mention to you. One of my favorite, one of our family's favorite mementos that we have is a picture of Dr. Chriswell uh, giving a a uh, gift to our oldest son Justin when he was probably twelve years old, maybe eleven. And he had been in a play where Justin played King Josiah, the young king, right? And Dr. Chriswell inscripted on the back. To the greatest King Josiah I've ever known, <laughs> W.A. Criswell, which was pretty cool. And oh, then the second, the second story behind that, which you'll find interesting, is O.S. Hawkins came to be pastor yeah. of the church where Dr. Criswell was still a senior pastor, and they had a great relationship. Hmm. O.S. knew exactly how to handle an icon like that, and, and Pastor uh, Criswell was gracious. So they, he, OS called me one day and said, let's go to, you want to go to lunch with me and Dr. Criswell? Uh, absolutely. Right. So, you know, I'm just in the back seat and we're coming back from lunch and these guys are having a discussion over whether or not Charles Spurgeon would be considered a liberal in today's society, given how, <laughs> the, I mean, I just thought it was, I, I, it was like an out-of-body experience. I mean, obviously, I had nothing oh, yeah. bad, and they didn't ask my opinion either, <laughs> by the way, but, but it was just, just an out-of-body experience. It was incredible. So anyway, those are, it was a great honor for the short period of time that we had that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I know I, I was in preparation for this. I was watching, he'd preached his final sermon at 90. And I was just thinking, man, what a giant in that community uh, yeah. that he was. And uh, it sh- shaped a lot of people. They've got most of their on org or com or whatever. You can go listen to his services anytime. It's really good. Some of them are just fantastic. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one of the things you tie it to in the book that I found really helpful uh, was the concept of building a team. Yeah. So I happen to be reading recently uh, 11 Rings, which is Phil Jackson's book on winning yep. 11 titles. Yep. And one of the things he talks about in there is tribal leadership. And he said, you know, if you have a team where everybody says, I'm great, you can yeah. only get so far. But you need a team of people who say we're great. Yeah. And that's really what the Bulls and the Lakers eventually became. So uh, talk about your experience. Did you find that to be true? You said uh, in the book that, that building team was just central to what you're able to accomplish at a number of levels. 
Yeah, I think what you have to do has been different. All the different things I've done has been team, whether it's been my family or my business or political career or what have you, is that you, you have to. And, and I learned some of this, obviously, a lot of it from John and others, is that you have to to build a team, to successful team. Obviously, we have to buy into the same major goal or major yes. pathway. OK, however, however, and this is where a lot of teams, I think, fail is it also has to be in a scenario where each individual can also have success. Yes. It can't, yeah. it can't be something that they're going to sacrifice everything, everything, and get really nothing out of it other than the fact that the team got a trophy, right? That right. just it doesn't work that way. There has to be something about it that gives that individual person to make them feel the gratifying effect of winning as, as that team winning. And it's also something that that person could not get on their own. And so that that was the critical part to me. And then the second thing about building team is, and this is where you had to make tough decisions quickly, which is what Jackson talks about too, is that you have to find out whether or not that you trust each other. Mm. I don't care how talented they are. If there's not a trust factor in there. And, and even when you think about Scottie Pippen, and Michael Jordan, and we've heard about all this stuff lately, that they had maybe not the best relationship. But when they got on that line, I guarantee you, Scottie Pippen trusted Michael Jordan. And oh, Michael yeah. Jordan trusted Scottie Pippen. Yep. And that's the thing. Because you think, you think about, well, how could somebody as crazy as Dennis Rodman be considered <laughs> such a really good teammate inside the line? It's because yep. they trusted him of what he was going to do. And that. That's the way I think it works. Yeah, absolutely. And what I found in business, it's actually really hard to build environments like that because you're really building a culture. Uh, Phil talks about that as well. I'm curious, what, what were some of the things that you were aiming to establish within the company, within the team to make sure there was high trust? Yeah. Well, first of all, I, the things that I wanted to establish to the people that were closest to me on the team, and I wanted that to be taught down, was that I wanted to get to know them personally. I needed to know if we had a similar value system for something like we were doing it. Maybe yeah. all teams don't have to have that. That was important to me. Okay. Because it was my family's future that was on the line and I couldn't afford to not have that with the people that were closest to me. Um, I never wanted the business to be about me. I mm. never did. I talk about that. That's why I didn't name it Simmons Investment Management. Okay. Could have done that. But I didn't want it to be about me. So if I didn't want it to be about me, I was giving up a little bit of control, right? Just by that fact. And if I was going to give up control, I needed to have trust of the people that were close to me. And so <sighs> the way I built that was to be able to get to know them personally and, you know, talk about their families, have dinner with their families and their wives, you know, wives, spouses, all that type of stuff. That was what was important. And that's the way that's the way we did it. And also, I think that uh, having expectations that people knowing what your expectations are and them seeing you striving to meet those same expectations, I think was important as well. Yeah, that's really helpful. Uh, one of the things you said in the book that I found to be maybe the truest thing, there was a lot of true things, but you said that Lonesome Dove was the greatest miniseries of all time, to which I give a hearty amen. It's hard to argue with that. Uh, but you talk about this concept that I really like, found really, really helpful about not getting stuck in life. Right. And uh, so I wonder if you just unpack that. Why is it so important in moving forward to avoid this ditch of, of getting stuck? Well, if you, you know, if you know the Lonesome Dove story about what was a couple of different areas of that, what was going on down uh, on the border and they were just kind of going through the same things every day in life and they had lived this incredible life. But even more important part of that story is the Jake Spoon story. Yeah. Where he gets caught up with these bad guys just because he's trying to make it through Indian territory because he left Gus and those guys. And he ends up getting caught up with these guys that kill these farmers and what have you. And, you know, Gus and them, they don't, they don't, there's certain things that they don't put up with. And one of the things was, <laughs> was, was horse thieves and uh, people that killed farmers. And so, you know, they, they got them, caught them all and then strung them up to hang them. And, Jake was like, well, I didn't even shoot anybody, which he didn't, you know. And 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 Gus just said, well, son, you crossed the line. Mm -hmm. and Jake said, I didn't see no line. And I think that's what happens. That's how we get stuck. We don't see even where we are. We don't even notice the rut we're in, right? Mm -hmm. 
And and that's why we constantly have to have these mentors, these accountability people to say, okay, uh, you're complaining about this. Because usually when we're in a rut, we're complaining, right? There's something we don't like. We're complaining about it. My, you know, my wife gripes at me or my kids are bad or my business partner this. And we, we don't even realize that we're compl- really complaining because we haven't moved forward. And if you don't have accountability people around you, such as mentors or others, then you're not going to be able to see that yourself. It's hard to see out of a rut, right? It's very mm. hard to see out of that. And, and a rut just means you're stuck. And so, therefore, I think the key to that is to have regular accountability partners in those different areas of your life. Yeah, that's so important. Uh, one of the things too, you mentioned that changes in life, right? Your 20s, you're really trying to figure out what you're good at. Your 30s, you're really going hard into that. Then your 40s change. There's more of the leadership. Um, and then as you get older, you're no longer, I think, in positions where uh, you're always looking up to mentor, but you're looking down to mentor other people. Yes. So I'm curious too, in the business world and politics, have you found yourself in the position where you then become the mentor? And if so, how did you adjust for that? Yeah, I, I think it, it, it in some ways it happens naturally because it's it's like uh, what's the saying when if, if, the, if the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And so oh, yeah. I think what happens is that in my business life, especially there were people that that obviously wanted to succeed more and maybe be owners themselves. They would naturally be interacting with me every day, but then the, the special ones would come to you outside of that and want to sit down with you. And at first, they're just kind of asking business questions, which you might normally go, but then it develops into a more, you know, deeper relationship and what have you. And the same way with our adult children. I think there's no greater pleasure than your adult children asking you for advice. But as we, as it, it happened, not only in that, but also in, you know, in the political world, one of the things that I've learned. And we talk about in the book, you know, the chapter on show horses, plow horses and work horses yes. is that yeah. once you develop people pretty quickly figure out who you are. And once you develop your reputation, uh, that reputation is hard to overcome. Now, it is true that a reputation is what other people think you are and character is what you really are. But reputation as far as being able to have an influence is important. And so in the political world, in the public policy world, let's say, people pretty quickly knew that I was a workhorse. And so when 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 complicated policy issues would come up, I, I would and I still get lots of uh, communications related to that. That's why I serve as an advisor to the CEO of the Heritage Foundation of Texas Public Policy Foundation. They're very smart organizations and what have you, but they know that I am a serious person when it comes to public policy, that I'm not in it for the politics. I was in it for the policy part. And so I think your expertise will bring the mentees to you. And what you have to realize as a mentor, that what you say carries exponential effect. So you have to be limited in your words. Okay. Just, Mm. and, and once you're mentoring someone, you're not their peer. Okay. In that scenario, you could be their friend and you you could actually do social stuff together. But in that world, you're not their peer. So you can't have the same conversation with them that you might have with a peer because it has too much influence over them. You got to be very careful with your words. Yeah, that's such a good point. Uh, I want to ask one question just about your political career. Um, As you think about that, I know there was a lot of ground covered in the book and, and encourage people to read it to get more on this. But you look back on it. Uh, what are you most proud of that you were a part of, were able to accomplish? You know, when it, when it comes to public policy, the things that I was most proud of was what we did for the disabled. We mm. I passed some bills that would normally people would think about them not as Republican bills, but my my position has always been that if you want to have people as independent as possible then you need to make sure they have the tools to become that. And and for people that are disabled, some of that is making sure that they have gotten as far as they can with their disability so that then they can be productive, right? And so we passed some bills that that helped that situation along, which I was very proud of and had bipartisan support for and what have you. Got some 
you know, pushback from the far right, but that's that's okay. I get that. Uh, but the other things that I was the most proud of is that when I was in there in my first session, and I didn't alter the bill or anything, but but me and others were key parts of it, is that this was in 2013, is we, we passed the 20-week abortion ban, which mm. before that was much longer than that. Now, that seems like a forever now, right? 20 weeks seems like, wow, but I can't tell you how hard it was to get that done. Uh, because I said right then, if we never, if I never was part of any other bill that passed, that would have been worth everything that Lisa and I invested time and money included. Uh, and then finally, I would say, not so much the policy itself um, was the understanding, the true understanding of how the process works, and having an appreciation. You know, when I, the, I I've spent the first seventy days in office. I met with 179 other legislative members. There's 140, 150 of us in the House and 30 in the Senate. And so I met with 179, it took me 70 days. And all wow. I did was take about 15 to 20 minutes with each of them just to get to know them. Look mm. at what pictures they have on the wall in their office. What you know. So and what I found out, first of all, it helped me when I needed to talk policy with them because we had a relationship. And but also what I found out is people on the other side of the aisle. You know, if they were from McAllen, Texas, they really didn't look at Texas that much different, you know, than I did. And that I needed to remember that, that I couldn't be so pompous that I thought that this suburban guy who had been successful in business was more Texan and knew better than the other people. That just wasn't true. And that was really, really helpful to me, not only in that, but it's helped me in the other parts of my life to remember that. Right. That's been very important. Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh, Ron, I want to ask you one question as we close yeah. here. Um, as you look at the next kind of phase of your life and you look at what's next, what, you know, taking the next step, all that good stuff. Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind, we always talk about as we get older is finishing well, mm-hmm. right? Guys are interested in that. I, I want to finish my life well, leave that legacy. So on your bucket list of finishing well, like what do you put on there? I think what I, what I put on there, first of all, is making sure, number one, that I don't do anything that would have tarnished my legacy, okay, mm. from the past, because one tarnish can overcome years of really doing well, as we, as we yeah. see, you know, for all, for all you and I know, really, uh, Judas was a wonderful disciple, right? But yeah. what do we remember by him? Only one just thing, the la- right? Just Who the knows? end. It's the last thing, right? And so I want to make sure that that's my number one thing. And then the second thing I want to do is I want to make sure I tell our kids this is that so Lisa and I, my wife and I started here. OK, and maybe we'll end up here. All right. And it's not all financial. Some of it's influence. Some of it's making it being able to make a difference. I want my kids to start here because of what they've learned from us and end up here. And I want yeah. that, I want them to do the same thing for their grandkids. So how do I invest in my family's lives? that will allow them to take it to the very next level. Mm. And that's, that's really what I'm focused on. And I don't 100% know how to measure that, but just in seeing what they're engaged in uh, makes me feel good about that. And yeah. hopefully I can be there for my grandkids doing the same. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's fantastic, Ron. I appreciate you so much for joining yeah, me on this episode absolutely. of the podcast. Um, I know you have a Facebook account. Is there anywhere else online where people can follow yeah, along with yeah. what you're doing? Yeah, ronsimmons.com. I have a website. Uh, okay. You know, it's where people can go on there if they want me to consult with their businesses. I do that or speak at their events. They can also buy my books on there through Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Audible. And uh, happy to communicate with them. My email is ron at ronsimmons.com. I love hearing people's stories and hearing from people. So, and I'd love to, you know, be able to hear from anybody that wants to visit with me. And Eric, I really appreciate you having me on. It's been very good to visit with you. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your time. And we'll definitely have links for those in the show notes, as well as for your book, Life Lessons from the Little Red Wagon. Ron, again, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks again for listening to this episode of the Hardman Podcast. And special shout out to our Patreon supporters. If you're not yet a Patreon supporter, you can join today for as little as $5 a month. And that definitely helps keep this work going. We are glad to partner with you for content that builds a new Christendom and reclaims biblical masculinity at the same time. You can check the show notes for the link to become a Patreon supporter of the Hard Men podcast today. 
Well, thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay frosty, fight the good fight, act like men. <laughs> <laughs>